Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So today you're going to hear an interview with John Ratliff. Now, I first met John at a Vern Harnish event, Fortune Growth Summit event, and I met him at, at a reception that I was at, and everybody's in a business suit or at least, you know, slacks and a shirt. And in walks this guy, and he's wearing flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt. And I think, who is this guy? Eventually, I get to know John and John's story. Well, it turns out John is a very successful entrepreneur. He started Apple Tree Answers, a call center business, from a spare bedroom in his house in 1995. He grew it to something like 600 employees. They were doing something like $5 million in EBITDA when they got acquired by a strategic acquirer in 2012. His story is interesting, and I think you're going to like the message he's got for you. So without further ado, Hawaiian shirt, flip-flop wearing John Ratliff. John, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Apple Tree. So Apple Tree Answers uh, was in or is still an inbound, high-touch customer service call center company. And what that means in simple terms is when companies aren't available to take phone calls, emails, web requests themselves, uh, they would outsource those to Apple Tree, uh, and we would kind of duplicate their entire back office and treat their customers. Uh, as well or better than they could treat them themselves. For some companies, that was 24 hours a day. For some, it was after hours. For some, it was on weekends. But our role was to be transparent. So when the customer called that particular company, uh, they didn't realize that they reached a third party. They thought they were speaking directly with the company. So um, we had we started from scratch. I started it from scratch in 1995. Uh, we grew it. Or I, I, I say we, John, all the time. It's, it was me. But uh, I grew it through about 2003 uh, entirely organically. We were one location uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. And then we did our first uh, buy-side acquisition in 2003. And then between 2003 and 2011, we did 23 more. So 24 total acquisitions. Uh, and we used a, not the traditional just um, you know, buy-side acquisition strategy to grow. We actually had a blend of a really focused organic growth program and an acquisition program. And our goal was to grow each of those locations uh, after they were purchased as a kind of a standalone entity. So uh, I'm proud to say 23 of the 24 were larger when we sold the company in 2012 than they were when we acquired them uh, along the way. So we, it definitely wasn't just acquisition. It was certainly acquisition and organic growth. Got it. Um, so you've looked at this from both, you know, we're going to talk about the sale of Apple Tree in a moment. Before we go there, though, I'd love to ask you what it was like to buy a business. I mean, that doesn't really occur to a lot of entrepreneurs. Who gave you the idea to think about buying a business? And then, you know, how did you scale that up to 40, 24 different acquisitions? So it's, it's a funny story. One of my uh, longtime, very close friends was a CPA and had um, some experience doing M&A and had a tremendous bank relationship. And, uh, you know, he was, he had kind of constantly said, I, you, you really should be out acquiring, you should be out acquiring. And I thought it was totally beyond our reach. So he set up a meeting with, uh, with our local bank. Uh, it was a bank called um, WSFS, Wilmington Savings Fund Society. Uh, and a local bank where you could get in front of all the decision makers and, you know, play golf with the chairman of the bank, that, that type of um, size. And, you know, we kind of pitched the idea, hey, we want to go out and, and potentially pursue an acquisition strategy. And to my amazement, the bank was really excited about that. Um, so we, uh, 
we made a bunch of offers and, and none of our offers were accepted. And uh, finally, we decided the next, and we had a broker we were working with. We said the next deal that comes, we're just going to offer the asking price, uh, no matter what it is. And and uh, we did. We offered the asking price. Obviously, the price was accepted, and we did our first deal in May of '03. Uh, and then, ironically, while we were at the closing table uh, for the first deal in May, uh, our broker called and he said, "Hey, you know, you made an offer on that business in Maine." Uh, you lost to another bidder. Well, the, that bidder has fallen through, and uh, it's back on the market. Are you interested? So, I turned to my buddy, the CPA, and I, you know, we're literally signing the documents at a, you know, at a closing table. I said, "Hey, uh, Maine's back on the market. What do you think?" He said, "You know, we had originally offered a million one, and then we lost to a bid of a million two. So he he said, I think half tongue in cheek, but he said, "Why don't we Why don't we offer a million and see what happens?" Now, at the time, to put this in perspective, John, we're a $1.1 million company doing a $550,000 acquisition. So we're going to have to go to the bank again and ask for more borrowing than our gross revenue in the previous <laughs> calendar it. year. So, so uh, I called back the broker and I said, uh, or I, I say to the broker, we'll, we'll reduce our offer to a million, but we'll, we'll rebid at a million. He called me five minutes later. He said, okay, they accept. So I, I turned to Ralph Citrullo was the CPA. I turned to Ralph and I said, well, now what the hell are we going to do? They, they they accepted the offer. And he said, well, we'll talk to the bank. So we uh, we went to – and th- th- this is a bit of a long story, but it, I, think it's, um, I think it's a great example of, uh, of how regional banks um, sometimes can be more flexible and nimble than, than some of the national banks. So um, we, uh, we called our banker and he said, he said, yeah, we'll do it. We'll be happy to do it. Uh, we were going to borrow eight hundred thousand, and the seller was going to put up two hundred thousand in uh, in in a note. So sure enough, we uh, and this is May, middle of May in two thousand three, and we're supposed to close in in early July. And it's about a week and a half before the deal, and our banker called and said, "Hey, I, I've got some bad news. Um, I can't get your loan approved." Now we've already paid a commitment fee. We, we've you know we've got a broker that we're trying to build a relationship with. Obviously, we've got an industry that's very small that uh, we don't want a bad name in. So he uh, he called. Well, Ralph had had a 20-year relationship with this particular banker, and he'd never had a deal go bad. Not a single deal that he'd brought to the bank had ever gone bad. And he said, listen, I'm, I'm going to stake my entire relationship with you and the bank on getting this approved. If this doesn't get approved, I'm ending my relationship with the bank. So we actually were invited in uh, to speak to the director of credit and kind of convince that guy why uh, this was a good investment for the bank to make this loan. And what we found out later was we were really being brought in because uh, the our banker, told the director of credit, you have to tell these guys no. I can't tell them no myself. So I, I later learned that we were supposed to be there five minutes to be told no. But, uh, but we went in, we pitched them for about two hours on all the reasons why it was a great deal for the bank. And the last words from the director of credit were, listen, I don't want to see you back in here for at least a year. Uh, called us five minutes later and said they, have, they approved the loan. And we, we were able to buy the second company in July of 2003, and then the bank relationship just went crazy from there. They uh, they became our biggest advocate. Uh, we literally bought 24 companies and never took a penny of personal or business capital out of our pocket. Uh, but you had a personal guarantee, I'm assuming. We had a personal guarantee. 
Um, but it, you know, it, the personal guarantee became, uh, it, it got so large, it was almost pointless to have. Um, you how know, did, it, go ahead. John, how did the deal structure evolve? So in the, in the early days, it was, you know, buying a company for a million, 800 of that, you were financing through the bank, 200, you were financing through the owner, you're getting them to, to take the note. Yeah. How did it evolve to the 24th deal? I mean, was it a similar 80-20 split or did it change dramatically? Yeah, all of our deals. Uh, it, it was we were very disciplined around how we valued companies, what we would pay, and and you know how we structured deals. Uh, it never it never wavered between fifty and eighty percent bank and seller. So our bank requirement was we'll never lend more than eighty percent, and the sellers have to put up the other twenty. You can't go out and, and source capital from somewhere else. So, but what we were able to do is we built a great reputation in the industry that. We did what we said we were going to do. We took really good care of the sellers. If there was any dispute or any doubt about, you know, a post-close issue, we'd always kind of favor the seller and make sure we maintain a great reputation. So, um, sellers were, were more than happy to uh, to hold a note with us for twenty to fifty percent of the business. And um, but our our trend, we were incredibly disciplined. We never overpaid. Well, what, uh, what were you buying these businesses for? If you can give me a rough ballpark of, of what, you know, do they trade on a multiple of revenue or earnings? They, or how they would, yeah, they would trade on a multiple of EBITDA and we would, we would typically pay between three and three and a half times. And I think the most we ever paid was four and a half. Uh, and that was slightly, a star, you know, our, our limit was four, but it was strategic and there were a lot of reasons why we wanted to do this one particular deal. We paid four and a half, but, uh, but we also had an incredible operating model where we were able to, to buy the company. Um, and we had some really kind of non-negotiable rules. Number one was it could not be a turnaround. The company had to be profitable, preferably in the 15 to 20% range. Uh, number two, we would not cut a single employee on the way in. Um, we were totally focused on employee engagement and morale. So we really, we had a, a really good formula for how to, to do deals. But in almost every case, within 60 days, we would put, you know, kind of some, make some tweaks to the operating model, maybe some tweaks to pricing. And we were able to take these businesses and make them cash flow positive, including all the principal and interest payments on the debt within 60, never more than 90 days. Wow. So you're um, basically buying these for free, really, in, in exactly. a way. We, we, no, we absolutely grew this business uh, to 30 times the size of the typical player in the industry entirely on the credibility with the bank and, and seller financing. And then you turned around to sell the rolled up company, Apple Tree Answers, uh, in 2012. So let's get into that. Now, okay. what was the trigger? Because you're on this roll, you you basically got free money coming from the bank. What was the trigger that caused you to want to sell? So, you know, the company was 18 years old. Um, and it, it, I, all my personal wealth and assets were tied up in the organization because we were, you know, the, because we were so acquisitive and there wasn't a ton of cash flow coming out of the business. We obviously had some debt. And, um, I, I realized it was probably time for me. I, I, it had sort of run its course, and I, I think 18 years was a long time. That was the one factor. And just as we were thinking about going to market and putting the company on the market, uh, a S&P public, 500 publicly traded company uh, started to pursue a roll-up in the industry. And they were, um, they were the first real kind of enterprise-level buyer to enter the space. And because they were 
pursuing a roll-up, and we ultimately were a platform company for them, uh, they were able to pay a strategic valuation as opposed to a financial valuation. So, yeah, so that that was kind of those two things sort of in concert with each other uh, made me realize it was the right time. So let me get underneath this triggering event because it sounds like there was kind of a push-pull. In one case, there was an opportunistic buyer out there who was clearly an ideal candidate to be acquiring you guys. At the same time, what I heard you say was there, you know, you've been at it 18 years. You hadn't really been able to pull out a ton of cash because you've got all this, you know, complicated financing involved. I mean, was there part of this when you looked around at your peer group, you know, people you went to school with or people, your neighbors thinking, you know, man, I'd love to actually pull some money out of this company one day and, and, and buy a new car or, or you know, pay off the house. Were, were those sorts of uh, uh, purchases in your mind as, as reasons to sell? Yeah, you know, I, I, we were at about probably, I don't know, five and a half, six million in EBITDA. So from a lifestyle standpoint, I was comfortable. We, you know, we, we were happy with where we were, but uh, certainly it's always in the back of your mind what it would be like to, you know, to turn this operating asset into a large amount of capital that then you could go deploy in other interesting ways. And, and that was certainly part of it. Um, but I don't think that was the primary driver. I, I think it was more, you know, the, the, the stars were aligned. I, I kind of recognized that this may be a once in a, a lifetime opportunity to get the kind of valuation that we were ultimately able to get. And you know, I didn't want to look back one day with regret and say, oh, you know, I, I should have I should have exited then and I didn't. And, you know, it, it was funny, too. We had we had 24 locations. So um, and we obviously had, you know, a pretty significant amount of debt. I was actually paying the entire value of my my personal home mortgage in principal and interest on the business every five weeks. So I was literally buying my house every five weeks in business debt. And you kind of become numb to the fact that you're doing that. But every once in a while, you know, you'd wake up and look at that and think, wow, this is a remarkable amount of principal and interest that you're paying back. And um, because we were 24 locations, I was always waiting for the shoe to drop. You know, a, a location burns down, there's an accident, someone gets hurt. Like, and, and ultimately, there was all this risk out there and there was an incredible opportunity and kind of decided that, you know, it was time. The risk was that a life stage thing? I mean, were you were you more, were you getting more risk averse as as you got a little bit older? Uh, no question about it. I started the company. I was twenty four. Uh, I started in a two bedroom apartment. I was literally the only employee. Would answer the phone around the clock. I had a buzzer next to my bed that would wake me up when the phone rang, and completely grew it from scratch. And th- I went from that to you know three kids and a, you know comfortable lifestyle and. Uh, it completely changed my risk tolerance. There's no question about it. Hmm. So tell us about the negotiation itself. You, you decide to make this, you, you put yourself on the market. Did you engage an M&A guy? Did you try to sell it yourself? Like, what was that process Yeah, like? so, so we hired an investment bank. Um, we went down the traditional path. You know, we put together a book. We did an outreach program. But while we were in the process of that engagement, uh, the ultimate buyer actually was, you know, contacted us. Um, and we made the decision. We made a very difficult decision at that point. So we had done 24 buy-side acquisitions. We knew how to do M&A. But much like an attorney shouldn't represent themselves in court, we made the decision, even though we sourced the buyer, to continue the engagement with the M&A firm. And I, I think that was fundamentally critical. If, if we get a deal done at all, um, we would have left literally double-digit millions on the table 
by not using the M&A firm. So, um, Why do you say that? Because we were emotional about it. Um, you know, not, not emotional in a, in a negative way, but, um, but more important than that, I think anytime, uh, well, this is, this is an opinion about transactions, but when you're involved in a transaction one-to-one, uh, there's no good cop, bad cop. There's no fallback position. There's no, there's no third party to really help mediate. And I think when you have an investment bank or you have a broker, you have, you have that third party there, um, there's someone with some perspective and some distance that can help kind of foster a productive negotiation. And our negotiation at times was, you know, like, like most M&A transactions, difficult. Uh, and the investment banker really kind of helped both parties sort of navigate to a transaction that was fair, equitable, and, and a success for everyone. But that, we, n- that navigation, John, comes at a price. I mean, what, what, ballpark, what would you end up paying the M&A firm on the deal? Yeah, I mean, we you know we we paid multiple millions in fees. Um, you know, I think we probably paid probably four million or so in fees, but uh, more than recouped in the added value uh, in the transaction. Um, no question about it. And I'm about fifty percent sure that we would would not have gotten any deal done had we been on our own in this negotiation. So, uh, and had we gotten a deal done, it, you know, we would have left significant amount. So, who's the we? I know you said it was just you in the in the in the uh, bedroom well, of your house, but I'm sure yeah, that no, evolved. <laughs> when, when we started the the acquisition strategy, like I said, you know, my close friend Ralph was a CPA. He brought the bank relationship. Uh, he kind of brought the the M and A background, and decided to work for Sweat Equity in exchange for a percentage of the company. So um, he he wasn't a day to day. Uh, decision maker or partner, but he did have equity in the firm and then participated obviously in the exit, um, which was a very effective use of his uh, of his M and A experience and his time. I don't want to tell you what we calculated his hourly rate to be over those eight years, but I can tell you it's in the five figure range. So <laughs> he's one happy CPA. Yeah, it was. But you know what, John? Everyone won. It was a great outcome for everyone, and. Um, you know the, the company that bought us got a great asset with an incredible team, and obviously we got a great outcome for us. And uh, it, it's not always the case in M and A that that you get outcomes like that. So, so it was just you and Ralph, the shareholders. Did you have other other shareholders that you had to? Uh, the yeah the uh, the single greatest investment anyone in my family ever made was when we did the first deal in 2003. The bank had one requirement that we had no other bank, and we had a note on a piece of equipment. Uh, the call processing platform that we were using with a third party. And they said, well, you have to figure out how to take that note out. So my mom decided she was going to, she was going to put in a hundred thousand dollars to take out that note. And, uh, for in exchange for ten percent of the company at the time, and I can tell you that the return on that hundred thousand was uh, was incredibly effective. What <laughs> a girl! That's um, great. Well, you know, the, and the, there's a cool sidebar story to it. it. My my brother's wife was our director of we we banned the term human resources. We called it the employee experience department. Uh, we were deeply deeply focused on employee engagement, but she was our director of employee experience. So, you know, she was a senior leader at the company and, um, this is your brother's my wife. brother's wife. Yeah. So, and it, you know, it's when we sold, uh, my mom only has two sons and, you know, obviously she got this, uh, huge return on her investment. And, uh, I said, listen, you, you, you know, you're, 
you don't need it. You're comfortable and everything else. And, you know, half of it's going to go to Mike anyway. Someday, why don't we just do it now? So, um, so she was a, Emily, his wife was able to retire. They, you know, they have a nest egg for their kids. They have college covered. And that was, you know, that's probably like the best outcome of all for me. That's fantastic. That's yeah, fantastic. So let's get into the negotiation, the nitty gritty. You said that, that it was at times tense. Uh, take me from when you identify that there's an acquirer out there, and, and you brought these guys to the table, not your investment banker, but walk us through the process. You agreed to a letter of intent. How, how contentious was the LOI? Uh, the, the, the LOI wasn't contentious. The, the challenges were, and you know, this is, I think, nine out of 10 times in deals. The biggest challenges were around legal and around reps and warranties in the deal. Um, the other challenge was that they were buying medical-only call center companies, and they had to make the shift in strategy from medical-only to the broader kind of customer service call center companies. And the, the fortunate part for us was we were the platform for that side of their strategy play. So LOI wasn't tough. Obviously, you know, it, it, we, we pushed and pulled to get to a number on valuation, and that's always not contentious, but certainly a, a back and forth. How many times did it go back and forth? Probably six or seven. On uh, the valuation? Primarily. Yeah, I would say six or seven, give or take. And roughly, again, ballpark, what, what were you able to get for the business in terms of the valuation? Uh, we, you know, it's obviously it's covered under uh, our confidentiality agreement, but um, we were able to sell for about three, four times what, you know, the industry averages were. So definitely a strategic valuation as opposed to a, uh, a financial valuation. And how did you get them to pay that much? I mean, what, what was the story you were telling them about uh, why so- it was such a strategic fit? So the strategic drivers in the business, I think, and and obviously, you know, they would have probably a comment on this as well. But I but I really believe the strategic drivers that we brought to the table were no, number one, we had eighteen percent frontline employee voluntary turnover in an industry that averaged a hundred percent. We were really focused on employee engagement. Number two was we had, through doing 24 buy-side deals, we had a really good acquisition strategy that was working well. And we were able to then take these companies that we bought and very quickly kind of make them cash flow positive. And we we did that out of necessity because we were doing 100% financing and we had to have them cash flow positive. These guys obviously had capital to do deals, but that was that was valuable to them, our acquisition strategy. We also had what I considered to be if not the best, one of the absolute best teams in the industry. We had a we had a great senior leadership team, and more importantly, we had a tremendously good middle management team. So we brought a lot of talent to them in the space. Um, we had done some innovative things with Salesforce.com uh, that they were able to use in their business, and there were some other some other strategic drivers as well. But I, I really think the whole platform piece and our acquisition strategy was probably the number one lever. Even though they were a Fortune 500 company that would presumably have their own, you know, acquisition strategy, their own corporate development people, what is it about what you guys did that yeah, they were so was, enamored by? I think it was specific to the space. So it was, you know, we were we were doing mostly mom and pop style deals. They 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 were very and still are very acquisitive, uh, and had a pretty deep M and A function. But um, we were, uh, you know, we were in this particular little niche, this industry, and we understood how to do deals in this industry, I think, better than anybody. If you had it to do over again, what would you do differently about the negotiation itself? Uh, You know, it's funny. I I really feel like um, 
we ended up in a, in a great place. Uh, and I'm not sure I would change much about the negotiation itself. Um, you know, obviously in, in hindsight, you always look at little things here and there. There's, there's, there were a couple of, you know, small deal points that maybe we would change. Uh, but by and large, I, I think, and again, because the, the iBank did such a good job, um, in navigating the negotiation, I think the outcome, you know, we were all happy with, so I wouldn't change much. Now, that being said, there are some things that I personally would change knowing what I know now versus, versus then. Uh, yeah. So, and it's funny because a friend of mine who had recently sold kind of warned me that, that this was going to happen. And I told him that was absurd and he was out of his mind, but, uh, you don't, it's a psychic shift to go from having this economic engine that's producing outcomes that, you know, and face it, most growth company entrepreneurs intermix their personal and their business expenses. And, you know, we deduct cars and those types of things. And you have this machine that's producing economic results uh, that's also funding your lifestyle and everything else. And then you have this amazing, you know, capital event and you end up with a lot of capital, but no income and no, you know, kind of economic flow. And now all of a sudden you start paying attention to everything. I, you know, I used to spend money and didn't care. And it, like it was, you know, second nature for me because the business was producing such a great return. And, and what my buddy said was, he goes, you know, you're, you're going to notice what the price of, uh, of gas is on the signs now. And I said, you're out of your mind. I couldn't care what, you know, the price of gas is. And he said, no, trust me, you're going to notice. And, and, it, it was a funny example, but he was right. Like you really started to think about, you know, every dollar I spend now post transaction is coming out of the principle of the, of the capital that we acquired. And it was kind of a psychic shift that I wasn't really prepared for. The other thing that you, you kind of lose that you don't, as an entrepreneur, you don't really think about is you have this whole support infrastructure. So I had a CFO that was really good with my personal stuff. And, you know, I had an assistant and I, I kind of had all those things. And they all stayed with the business. And then all of a sudden, I was sort of on an island with really nothing to do. Um, a lot of capital to figure out how to deploy that I hadn't thought through. So I would have been way more thoughtful about the post-transaction experience than I was. I assumed everything would be great. And there were, no, these are first-class problems. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. But they're psychologically, they were, they were a challenge. And in talking to other entrepreneurs that have exited since, everyone seems to face that exact same uh, situation that I just described. So I can, I, John, I can remember signing up for Priceline. <laughs> I'm in my yeah. house, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've sold my company, you know, and I can remember signing up for Priceline because I could get cheaper hotels. <laughs> and it's, and it's the most bizarre. And again, I don't know how your spending habits were, but mine were, you know, not reckless, but certainly not thoughtful. And it all changed post transaction. So I empathize with your, did price you get, line. did you get over that? I mean, are you now? I did. So you how know, did you get over? I, I stayed on for, um, seven months to do the transition. And then, uh, once I was done there, I, I kind of, you know, the other crazy thing that happens post sale is you get calls from lots and lots of people because they know you have free time and you feel guilty. You have a lot of free time. So I did a whole bunch of free consulting, uh, both in person and over the phone and eventually decided I needed to find kind of something to do to keep myself entertained and, and busy. And I'm a strategy guy. I love strategy. So I actually went to work with the uh, M&A firm that um, managed my sale. 
So I'm now an investment banker doing sell side M and A. So I'm, I'm, what I bring to the table is I've been on the other side in a, you know, in a very intense situation. And I, I, I empathize with my clients now because I know what they're going through. These, these are, you know, in many cases, once in a lifetime transactions, and it's really important that they uh, navigate them properly. So, so that's what I do now. So now that I have some income again, I'm, I'm back to my old ways. But, Spending uh, like a drunken sailor. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> exactly. What was the one indulgence you allowed yourself? Now, having said that you were obviously, you know, watching your pennies in the days after the transaction, I'm guessing there was something you bought, something that you had always kind of dreamt of that you allowed yourself. Was there anything that you went out and, and splurged on after you sold? So, so the, the funny answer to that is, and the, you know, the things that I've, I've shared with lots of my friends is I, I drink slightly better wine than I used to drink. So now, you know, I, I'm willing to have our everyday wine be a little bit better than it was post pre-transaction. Uh, and that's the, that's kind of the funny answer, but, uh, no, actually I, have always been um, attracted to the Florida Keys. I vacation down there, and I would say the one big indulgence is uh, we bought a almost like a retreat property that w- then we added an addition to, and um, kind of built this like mini resort kind of compound in the Keys. And I've been able to use it pretty effectively in my M and A practice. We do a lot of our strategy sessions down there. We we entertain prospective clients there. So, so I, it's I a write up. Is this what you're telling me? Well, it's, you know, <laughs> yes, it is a write-off, a little bit of a write-off, but uh, but that was my one big indulgence. So, well, that's fantastic. You I didn't go crazy, but better wine. That's my that's my standard answer. Yeah, that's that's well, that's good, John. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.